Just before we start, some of our discussion this time contains adult themes, which might not be suitable for everybody. And nothing too terrible, but I just thought you should know. Hello, and a very warm welcome to this gathering of the Graham Norton Book Club. Think of us as an oasis where you can tie up the camel of your daily routine and drink in our cooling water of words. Joining my caravan of literary love is the Sultana of Stories herself, Alex Clark. Hello, Alex. Hello. I didn't really listen to any of that because I was trying to think of a sort of a raisin, a scone, a cake kind of pun, and I just couldn't. I think I'm the raisin of reading, and you can be the Sultana <laughs> of Stories. Okay, fair enough. How are you? Have you been um, touring the land? Well, I am about to be touring the land, and I have to say, I once made the mistake of saying to someone, perhaps we should meet up in person in the Irish countryside, and they said, not during lambing. And this is publishing's equivalent time. It's autumn publication schedules, as you know yourself. And it is literary festivals. So I'm currently packing my little car up, not a caravan, sadly, uh, with a million copies of books, frocks that you wear on stage, apples, microphones in case you should need me to broadcast at a moment's notice. Of course. And I've just got my eyes down, frankly until winter really sets in. Well, very good, and good luck with all of that. Our book of the week this time is George Saunders' Booker Prize-winning Lincoln in the Bardo, the story of the soul of Willie, Abraham Lincoln's dead son, as it waits in limbo to continue its journey to the afterlife, told through the disembodied voices of the spirits sharing his space. Here to talk about it are four very embodied book clubbers. Shivan, who chose the book for us, Gabby, Varshney, and Jared. Hello to you all. Hi. Hi. Graham. Hi. And uh, I haven't spoken to uh, Varshney or Jared yet this series. Uh, Varshney, how are you? I'm pretty good. What's new? What's happening? Well, I'm coming to you from work today. I've got a new job. I work back in a medical hospital. I was working in a psychiatric hospital last year. Okay. And I think it's been a fun change. I did my first IV cannula in a year today because you don't tend to give drugs IV in the other hospital setting and it worked. So I was very glad about that. Well, that's good. Haven't lost it in a year. This isn't filling me with confidence for going into hospital. you know. And it worked. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Jared, you too. You've uh, got a new job as well, haven't you? Yeah, I went back to the NHS. I had my nice little stint in a bookshop. Had a lot of fun. But, you know, bills need paying and London's expensive. So. Oh, OK. And are you, you glad to be back? Yeah, I love all the problems. And... <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, the IV worked. Uh, it's great, yeah. Uh, Gabby, I've always described you as a PhD candidate, but that is no longer true. It's true no more, yes. So I'm pleased to say that I have passed. I can now call myself a doctor. I'm, I'm still in the surreal state of... Um, Prosecco and lots of food and being being quite sleep deprived, but we're here to talk about books. <laughs> well, isn't that great? Two doctors and one book club. Marvellous. All right, well, off you go into the book club Bardo, and we'll speak to you later to find out if this took you straight to the heavenly realm or to the other place. After we've spoken to George Saunders himself, and after Alex has given us her three of the best. And Alex, I believe you're also venturing beyond the grave. Well, it was it was an absolute doozy, wasn't it? I mean, to chime with the wonderful George Saunders, I thought I shall take my inspiration from any writer who has dabbled their toe into the waters of the supernatural. But of course, that didn't really narrow it down very much. So this has been a feat of compression and selection rather than scrabbling around trying to find things. But I think I do have 
three of the best spooky stories. I look forward to that with interest. In the meantime, here's someone else who is in something of an altered state. I spent most of my childhood thinking I was a dog. It seemed more fun than being a human. I was once speaking at a children's literary festival in Jersey when a little girl put up her hand to ask a question. She was only about four years old and had been considering my statement about thinking I was a dog. Can I ask, please, Claire Balding, she said in a serious and thoughtful tone, when did you realise you weren't a dog? The audience laughed. And, Claire Balding, did you work it out for yourself? Or did your parents have to sit you down and tell you? Yes, as she announced herself, broadcaster and author Claire Balding is going to take us on a tour of her Isle of Dogs later on in Talking Books. So, time for more on Lincoln in the Bardo. It is February 1862 and the American Civil War is raging. Abraham Lincoln's 11-year-old son, Willie, has died of typhoid fever and is laid to rest in a crypt in a Georgetown cemetery. His father paces the graveyard, overwhelmed by grief. Meanwhile, his son is trapped in a state of limbo between the dead and the living, the bardo of the title, the Buddhist term for the space between death and rebirth. Willie is drawn to his father, but he can't communicate with him. He exists in a ghostly world, populated by the recently deceased and the long dead. The book is written in a series of snippets of thoughts, memories, conversations and observations offered up by this varied cast of characters, from a former slave to a man waiting for his virginal wife to love him, gradually revealing the stories of their lives and their reasons for being in this limbo. It combines these fictional voices with extracts from historical writings of the time. All the strands weave together until finally Willie finds rest. Lincoln in the Bardo is George Saunders' first and only full-length novel, although he was already a successful short story writer and essayist. It won the Man Booker Prize in 2017 and pretty much every other award going. It became a smash hit, with people praising its innovative form and its emotional depth. The inspiration for the book is based in historical fact. So when we spoke, I asked George when he first heard the story of Lincoln and his son Willie, who died so young. It was a long time ago. Our kids are still little, and they're in their 30s now. Uh, we were on vacation up in D.C. visiting my wife's cousin, and we just we drove by the graveyard, and she kind of offhandedly said, oh, did you know that when Lincoln was president, his son died, which I didn't even know he had a son. That's how astute I was. But that the son was temporarily kept in a crypt up there, and supposedly Lincoln went in there, and maybe even by some accounts held a body. And I just went, oh, my God. And at the time, I thought, wow, some writer could do a good job with that. Not me, because it's too deep. So I just kind of mulled it over for many, many years, always feeling like it was beyond my scope. And then back around, I guess, 2013, I just went, well, you know, you're 50 or something. You're not going to get any wiser. So if not now, you know, when? And it is this fabulous moment to pick to tell that story. But you would never imagine telling it in this way. How did you come up with that idea that he would be in this this bardo, this kind of kind of limbo world? 
You know, Graham, one of the things I, I really love about being a writer is that if, if you give yourself a really difficult problem, the only way you can solve it is through form. So this one, I tried to write it a lot of different ways, or at least imagine myself writing it different ways. So one would be, you know, kind of your standard third person narrator, but it just didn't go anywhere, mainly because Lincoln would have been there by himself. So, you know, what do you, you have a 300 page inner monologue, which you, you could, but it just didn't appeal to me. And then in this kind of mysterious way, there was a couple of different streams that came together. One was years ago, I tried to write a novel set in a graveyard in upstate New York, just a bunch of voices of dead people talking at once. That didn't really have anything to kind of make it cohere. So I wrote about 80 pages and threw it away. But the form was in my mind. And then a, a former student of mine said, you know, if you ever do write a novel, I bet it would be in the form of a series of monologues. So that idea was in play. And then finally, just that imperative that I, I needed some people to talk to or about Lincoln just for variety. And so, you know, I, you end up doing this kind of simple thing like, okay, uh, we're in a graveyard at night. Hmm, who could be there? It could be, you know, an errant night watchman. That's one. Or it could be an entire chorus of ghosts. So it was kind of process of elimination as really a, a very, very free way to write a book. You know, you could have anybody speak from any time period at any point in the book. That was really exciting to me. Stephen Davis is the clubber who chose Lincoln in the Bardo for our book club, and he's submitted some questions. He wants to know, you used a blend of the historical and fictional. How did including historical sources help you write about this man who's become sort of mythical in popular imagination? You know, the way I received the story was through that anecdote we just talked about. And then the 15 or 20 intervening years of doing kind of light hobbyist research on it. So I kind of had come to understand that this was a very particular moment in American history. They're losing the war. Lincoln is about to pull the Emancipation Proclamation out of his back pocket as kind of a desperation measure. I was writing it pretty minimally and I thought, oh God, I, I need to have a broader scope here. I need to get all that stuff in. How do I do it? Well, by that time, the form had kind of solidified. So you can't suddenly just interject a different mode. So I thought, okay, is there a way in which I can get this stuff in here and it will look the same on the page as the ghosts? And really, it was just me trying to retell the story to the reader the way I'd encountered it. And reading it, because it yes, all, all in these little chunks, but reading it, you kind of, as a reader, you get past that and it starts to flow and it has a thing. Was it the same writing it? Did, it, did the little pieces start to flow for you? Yes, very much. If you, if you made a graph, I spent a lot of months, years on the first third, and then it sped up after that. And so I, I always say I was teaching myself to read my own book. And I think readers have the same, you know, I've, I've given so many readings where I said, uh, somebody will say, I bought your book and I read the first 30 pages. And, and then there's an awkward silence, you know, and, and you can see that the book puts up an impediment at about page, you know, 28, 30. So that's kind of a calculated risk. I'm like, okay, for those readers who can stay with me through that, I hope, I contend, the first part of the book, having taught you how to read it, the second part offers particular delights. Uh, Shiva has another question. You know, despite the tragic circumstances, the novels often, I mean, he says darkly funny, but I would say there are sections of broad comedy in the book. Was that, did you know, or oh, I've got to <laughs> leaven the bread a bit? You know, I, I know it in the rereading. You know, I, I remember reading one draft and going, oh my God. You know, you sound like Henry James on Downers, you know, and so so then you just think, all right, well, in the same way that if you're giving a talk somewhere or you're at a party, you know, and, and you perceive that you're being a drag, part of your, your toolkit is to go, oh, yeah, I, I know how to not be a drag. It sounds silly, but I think so many of these structural questions really are just like 
a sense of saying, well, how am I doing? Would a reader that I haven't met, but that I am trying to respect, would she like what I'm doing right now? Would she feel that I'm on autopilot? Would she feel I'm being too silly or not silly enough? And then when you reread it enough times, you kind of get a sort of a, a wide idea of who your reader might be and you can adjust at speed. Shivan has one more question. He wants to know, would you consider writing an historical novel again? These are great questions, by the way. Yes, I, I would. What I loved about it was just the sense of cultural breadth, you know, that, you, that you're not just talking about a, a couple in their living room kvetching about the internet. You've got Lincoln and you've got a continent-wide war. And, you know, at the time, what I loved about it was it forced me out of my comfort zone linguistically. You know, I like to do contemporary voices and I think it can be pretty funny, but that wasn't available to me. So that was really fun to say, you know, at 52 years old, okay, pal, all, all those gifts that you've been working on and leaning on, nope, you don't get to use them. What else have you got? So yes, I would, I would consider anything, you know, anything to keep things lively. And I'm right, this is your first full-length novel, the short stories up until this. Yeah, it's so far the only. And, you know, it doesn't have hit written all over it. You don't kind of think, oh, yes, people will lap that up. And yet it sold like hotcakes. It won all the prizes. It was a popular hit. People loved it. Talk to me about discovering that and realizing, oh, wait, I've written a, a big crowd pleaser. Well, honestly, I mean, uh, first of all, that's probably the understatement of the year. Like, this doesn't have hit written all over it. Yes, I think that's <laughs> a fair statement. I actually, as I was writing it, it's funny, I had a sense that it would be, I mean, I wanted it to be a popular, accessible book. I mean, maybe naively, I had no doubt that it would be by my standards. Now, when it goes in the world and people say, I can't follow this thing, then you think, well, maybe I'm a little more esoteric than I thought. I'm a bit nerdier than I think I am, you know, so I can say this is a book for everyone. And it isn't, you know, it turns out. But this one, I, it came out at a particular time, you know, Trump had just been inaugurated and there was some revival of uh, national concerns, I think. People were thinking about these things. That was good. But I, I have a pretty high opinion of readers. I think if you make them stretch, they can absolutely go there, you know. And I know I always appreciate being made to stretch. Well, that's what books are for, I think. Um, well, thank you for talking about Lincoln and the Bardo. But there are some other books you want to hear about. Uh, the first is the book that turned you on to reading. How young were you? Uh, what sort of, were you a, a very bookish uh, boy? Well, I was a a natural reader. I read a lot of sports books and books about World War II and just kind of read cereal boxes and <clears throat> whatever was around. But in third grade, so I would have been, I guess, about 10, maybe. I had a, a Catholic nun named Sister Lynette who pulled me aside. And I, I kind of was halfway in love with her because she was a young girl from Kansas and was very sweet with us. And she said this fatal sentence, which is, some of the nuns have been talking about you in the convent. <laughs> it's like saying, Bono's been wondering about you. And she, she had a, a book and she was kind of withholding it from me a little bit. She said, no, hold on. She said this, I'm not sure you can handle it. It's a kind of a difficult book. You know, I'm like, oh, give me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a book called uh, Johnny Tremaine by Esther Forbes. And it was a historical novel based on the American Revolutionary War, told the story of this kind of arrogant young apprentice silversmith. And it really spoke to me because in retrospect, it was the first book I'd ever read that had style. You could tell that Forbes had been through every phrase and chosen the one that really was right. And I remember kind of, you know, for weeks afterwards in the way that sometimes happens with books, I was thinking in her language. At the time, I didn't think at all of being a writer, but that was the first time I'd really had a thrilling experience with language with, and, and also with being transported into another reality. 
The next book is one that you feel not enough people know about, one that slightly, you know, went without the, the fanfare. I actually have three, if I cut off them. One is a, a book by Gina Berrialt called Women in Their Beds. It's a kind of a collected story anthology. She passed away, I think, in the early 90s, but she's a wonderful writer. There's a story in there called The Stone Boy, which I think is just a, a classic, one of the great stories of all time. Then there's a book called Gorilla, My Love by Tony K. Bambara, who I happened to meet back in the 80s. And, and these are stories that are just anybody who's interested in voice should read them because they're so offhanded and casual, but really, really poetic. And then the last I'd mentioned was a book called Silences by Tilly Olson. Uh, and this is a, a kind of a lumpy nonfiction book about how certain writers have been silenced over the years, especially by gender and class and so on. So it was kind of a, a work of activism, but I think anybody who feels that their life is getting in the way of their artistic pursuits will be both encouraged and kind of shocked by that book, Silences by Tilly Olson. And the final book is the one that you admire so much that you really have kind of professional jealousy. You, you wish you'd, you'd done it. That For me, that's an easy one. It's uh, Foster by Claire Keegan. And uh, I just was stunned by the compassion in that book and many writers, and I would include myself in this, you get to a character and you kind of know uh, how you're meant to regard that character morally. I have a hard time putting in a character who is just three-dimensionally present and uninflected with my opinion. But Keegan is a master at this. And it's almost like each person is a kind of a three-dimensional sculpture and you can just turn them around in your mind and you see, oh yeah, there are people like that. And uh, if, if this person is doing a good thing, well, they're also capable of doing a less good thing. It's just a, a really a masterpiece. And it also had that quality that I loved in Esther Forbes, which is every phrase is considered. Uh, so I really, really admired that. She's just a real master. Glad she's in the world right now. George Saunders talking about his Booker Prize winning novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, and some of the books that have inspired him. And Alex, I believe we're staying on t'other side. Yes, I thought I would go to other realms and I was partly inspired because I've just read Jeanette Winterton's new collection of short stories, which is called Night Side of the River and is a collection of 13 stories and they're all based on different aspects of ghost stories. I mean, some of them are really quite firmly inspired by traditional sort of stuff. M.R. James, H.G. Wells, more recently people like Susan Hill. And you have lots of that kind of slightly gothic writing. You have soldiers who died in the First World War coming back and, you know, you find their boots and that kind of thing. But in amongst that, of course, we know that Jeanette Winterson has a real interest in artificial intelligence, in machine learning, in all the ways that apps and so forth are going to shape our future lives. And there are quite a few of those stories, too. I mean, imagine if you could, I don't know, there was somebody you were spending your life with and then they weren't there, but you could go to a metaverse and you could meet their avatar and they weren't really dead to you, but actually you could make them slightly better. You could tweak them. You could make them a bit less irritating. You could perhaps tone their tummy a little bit. What are the drawbacks? And that's what she explores. I really enjoyed it enormously. Is that one of your choices, or you just use this as an excuse to squeeze in a fourth book? <laughs> no, that is one of my choices. Okay, I thought that was a long preamble to the three. Don't worry, I've got plenty of other books to squeeze in very sort of, <laughs> you know, naughtily. Uh, because as I was doing this, I was putting this little list together, I thought three just isn't enough. Because of course you can go back to stories that you don't think of as ghost stories, like, for example... 
Beloved by Toni Morrison, or the great Victorian novels like Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights. You can think of the magical realism of Salman Rushdie. You can think of a very strange novel that I enjoyed recently, Piranesi by Susanna Clarke. So don't worry, I've got lots of extra mentions in. Those are my other choices. Well done. Very good. Everyone's very impressed. Uh, but my second, oh, yes. my second real choice is a Booker Prize winner, uh, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida by Shahan Karanitalaka, uh, which is set in Colombo in 1990. And it is about the Mali Almeida of the title. He's a war photographer. He's a gambler. He's in the closet. And someone has killed him. He is locked into the underworld. The underworld actually turns out to be rather a boring and bureaucratic place. But he's got the seven moons of the title to find out who has killed him and thereby to get to the box of photographs that is stored beneath his bed in his family home and to prove what is really going on in the horrendous violence, the civil war, the factional fighting of Sri Lanka. And it's a really unflinching book, but I thought it was very funny in places. I mean, a little bit like Lincoln in the Bardo. There's this huge sense of tragedy, but also this strange, offbeat kind of humour. I was very impressed by it indeed. Yeah. And your final choice, Alex? My final choice is a book I completely love, and I hardly think I'm alone. It is Beyond Black by Hilary Mantel. The novel that she wrote before she embarked on the Wolf Hall trilogy, and although it may seem very different, it's a sort of present day story rather than a Tudor history, in some ways you can really see the parallels. But this is about a medium, a medium called Alison Hart and her assistant, Colette, and another character, Morris, the circus clown, who smells of sewage and has been a, a customer <laughs> of Alison the medium's mother, who was a prostitute, and who dogs Alison's every footstep, even when she doesn't want him to. Now, whether or not she is some form of charlatan, or whether she really feels the presence of the other world, is a kind of moot point throughout the novel. It's incredibly funny, and it's also incredibly, incredibly painful. And I think there is a great case for it to be Hilary Mantel's one of her greatest, greatest achievements. Wow, I haven't read that one, so I I love Hilary Mantel. Go forth and read it instantly. And I should just say that in not too long a time, a collection of Hilary Mantel's non-fiction will come out, and it includes an extraordinary piece about one of her inspirations for this novel, which was her own visit to a psychic fair. Wow. Uh, Well, listen, thank you very much, Alex. And if you've been too busy photographing passing ectoplasm to note down the books we're talking about, don't worry. We've got you. Just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all the books that get mentioned on the podcast. Okay, it's time to talk about our book of the week. Joining us in this world to do that are junior doctor and library enthusiast Varshini Vijaykumar. Hello. Hi, Graham. Hi. A former book blogger and bookseller and now NHS administrator Jared Leachman. Good day. Hey. And for the first time, Dr. Gabby Humphreys, PhD. Ooh. Hello. Hello. That feels good. <laughs> <laughs> and English teacher and YouTuber, Shivan Davis, who chose Lincoln for us. Uh, so, Shivan, of all the books in all the world, uh, why this one for the book club? 
I thought I would try something more experimental and put people maybe outside of their comfort zones a bit more than I usually do. I read it for the first time when it first came out, and I got a lot more out of it this time around than I did the first time, partly because I'm a father now. So it uh, has a lot more emotional heft in that regard. Yeah. And before we get into kind of the, the what it's about, let's talk about that, the how is it about. Uh, Varshini, how difficult or easy did you find this book to read in its tiny little fragments? I struggled at the beginning, but I thought it was really apt that George Saunders says that the beginning is to teach you how to read it and to kind of ease you into the world. And then it reveals its gifts as you go on. And I thought it was fantastic. I became a lot more engrossed in it as it went on. And like the immediacy of some of the writing was so interesting. And yeah, it was just really good. And and Jared, how easy did you find it to get to know this vast cast of characters and, and kind of keep track of them all? So I read it as well um, previously, and this time I listened to it. And I'm not going to lie, it was so much easier to keep track of everything on the page than when you're listening to it, because I would listen to it on the train home from work. And then I'd pick up the next day and I'm like, who's that person? What What's happening? I enjoyed getting to grips with it. And there's so much in there. There's so much personality. The voice acting is amazing for the audiobook. Definitely recommend checking out the audiobook. It's one of my favorite audiobooks I've ever listened to, as well as the historical elements where I know nothing about American history. So I, I was doing some Googling the first time I read it. Just love the voice. I love the voice which um, George Saunders writes with. It's such an engaging voice. I mean, the audiobook must be, aside from one of the best that you've ever read, the one with the absolutely the most voices. I mean, it's a cast of God knows how many, isn't it? Well, apparently, there are 166 voices credited. Oh, wow. Um, even members of his own family are on the audiobook. And I think I'm running saying, Gabby, you also listened to the audiobook. I did, yeah. And it was an experience. It was truly theatrical. Um, while I love books to be thought-provoking... The first couple of hours of this really did feel like a riddle. The audio was brilliantly executed with so many different narrators for each character, but they weren't introduced in name and I feel like it would have been really beneficial to be able to flick back and really compare. But I am glad I stuck to it. I was pleasantly surprised continuing through the book. Varshini, were you surprised when you listened to George Saunders how little of this book is actually actual history. I assumed reading it that he had taken these characters from a graveyard and so on, but not the case. Yeah, it felt pretty convincing. I think he's so good at writing a complete story and very little. Like there's a woman who says that her entire life has been defined by being ugly and nobody wanting to talk to her. And it's literally like a hundred words, but it's just such a perfect summary of someone's entire life and their experiences. It's such an imaginative book. Yeah, I was expecting them to be based on historical characters. And it's interesting you say that thing about how the little pen portraits work. I mean, how much of a novel is this and how much is it still a collection of short stories? What do do you think, Shivan? I think it pushes the form into new territory. And I do think it works as a novel. I actually didn't find it as fragmentary as I expected to, given the splicing of fictional sources and the historical ones. Yeah, for me, it's more a kind of experimental novel. You've got lots of different points of view and perspectives, and it offers you this really vivid kind of vision of a graveyard. It's not really a historical novel almost. It's more kind of a metaphysical magic realist piece, I think. Oh, <laughs> it's really interesting you say that, because I, I mean, I think you're completely right. 
But I also think without the backdrop of the American Civil War and without that sense of the man in charge being put through this terrible personal grief, but also the sense of what he is asking his countrymen and the young of his country to do, and the fact that that is the kind of building block for the America that we know now and the shadow that it still casts, I think those historical dimensions actually are also what sort of elevates it in a way. Yeah. And obviously, you know, it deals with grief. It's very moving. But there are, it's not just comedy. There's like big, broad, funny bits in Uh this. Uh, How did you feel about that balance? Uh, Jared? what did you think? Uh, I love the comedy. I was cracking up on the train. I was trying to like control myself and not not just laugh and look like a madman in public. I, I wasn't expecting that at all. With what Alex said, I 100% agree with that as well, because I wouldn't care about this book if it didn't have that central historical, you know, location, um, time period, something real to anchor it down. And I think he even said it in the interview that like he was struggling to write this because he didn't have anything to anchor it. And then once he was able to do that, everything came to. For me, I see a date on the back of a book when I'm reading a blurb and I put it back on the shelf. I really do avoid historical fiction. And I was almost pleased that it wasn't too anchored to history, that it it was historical in elements, but it was definitely a fiction as well. Yeah. But I did love the humour. I am... I compared it to a Muppet's Christmas Carol when trying to summarise it to my poor partner asking what I was listening to. And I'm not sure if that's a sin or not, but, but I got the Muppets. I like the Muppets. Everything is better if you add a Muppet. Yeah. So that's that's so my comment. Abraham Lincoln and now the I want to see this Muppet version. I would watch that. Yeah, same. I, I must say, I would watch that. That yeah. sounds great. And the overall uh, reach of the book, how did it leave you feeling, Varshney? Were you depressed at the end? Were you optimistic about life? You know, how did it leave you? I think pleasantly uplifted. I think it's quite true to life as well. I think even when we are grieving and experiencing difficult times, that isn't ever completely monotone. Life still keeps going and things happen that are absurd and silly and make you laugh, even if you feel like you shouldn't be laughing. I think I don't really trust when writers try to keep you in a very low place. You go on that journey with the various characters and kind of come with them to the end and finding more of a hopeful conclusion. So I felt pretty hopeful at the end of the book, I would say. Do you agree, Gabby? (laughs) No. (laughs) That's okay. There was a sense of relief for finishing. (laughs) I do think it was brought together nicely. And like I say, I think about it positively, but it was a lot, wasn't it? Yeah, I found it really depressing because of the comedy. Because you would have those moments where you're just like, this person is dead. This person is no longer around. And I'm sure everyone here has lost someone close to them. And, you know, you think about some funny time that happened between you and you're like, oh, yeah, that will never happen again. Because, when you were you were saying how moving and, and how it really touched you. Did you find comfort in this book? Yeah, I think I agree with a lot of what Varshney said about how I think the outlook of the book is uplifting. Having said that, the scenes with Link in there, it, it's very somber. And I think... He doesn't allow much light in for Lincoln. I think you experience someone who's in a really dark, kind of unimaginable place. So, uh, yeah, I, I think comfort's probably not the right word for my experience of reading it, but um, I do think it's a, just a joyously written book. You can tell that, you know, uh, I think it must be such a fun project to write. I can imagine he just had such a great time. Let's get to what we have to do, uh, which is mark it out of 10. Uh, how likely are we to recommend this to a friend? I'm going to kick off with uh, Gerard. Out of 10, how likely? 
I give it a nine, <gasps> and the only reason I wouldn't give it a ten is because I wouldn't want to put certain people through that much suffering. Because I know certain people would really not do well with this book. So, so yeah, it's a nine from me, hundred percent. Okay, with a, a one-off for a trigger warning. <laughs> yeah, uh, Varshney. I'd honestly say 10. Wow. I'm really glad to have read this book and I'm really glad that you recommended it, Shiv. And I've already recommended it to a few people. It's something that should be tried and given a chance by as wide a group of people as possible. Gabby, we had a 9 and a 10 already. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm not that generous, but I, I would give it a 6. And I was really pleasantly surprised, but parts were so confusing and so inaccessible i feel like i do have to bear that in mind and finally uh shivan uh what are you giving it so i I think i give it a 10 and also think it's one of those great novels i think will be read in 50 100 years time i think it's one of those novels that just is so beautifully well done we're in 2023 now one year away from possibly a recurrence of trump so we might need a lincoln in the bardo to get us through all right, time to find out what we are reading next time. And it is the turn of Varshney to pick. What have you got for us? Well, I've chosen, I think you could call it a historical novel. Some of you might not like me saying that. It's a book called Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl by Andrea Lawler. It's set in the 90s. It's about a young lad called Paul who can shapeshift between male and female and has a lot of fun on a road trip around America. So I'm excited to see what everyone makes of it next week. All right. Well, thank you very much, Varshley. Looking forward to that. That is Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl by Andrea Lawler. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for discussing Lincoln in the Bardo, and I'll see you along the way. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, this sounds like a fun way to pass the time. I like to test myself by naming dog breeds so we'll constantly check whether I'm right. Is that a Legotto Romagnolo, I'll say to the owner of a gorgeous milk chocolate and cream curly-coated dog who bounds up to say hello? I'm thrilled when he says yes. One of the best-known voices and faces in UK broadcasting, Claire Balding. We usually see her on the television anchoring big sporting events from Wimbledon to the Olympics. But she makes no secret of being an ardent animal lover, and her autobiography, My Animals and Other Family, talks about her life growing up in and around her father's racing stables and all the many pets that she owned and loved. Dogs are top of her list, and in her new book, Isle of Dogs, Claire travels the country talking to people about their beloved best friends. There is also an audiobook, of course, so I had to talk to her about it, starting with what it is that characterises the Brits as owners. In the West generally... We have really gone for the domestication of our dogs. And to ask you a very personal question, Graham, does your dog or dogs, do they sleep on the bed? Of course they do. Why would you have a dog if they didn't? Yeah. Exactly. A very few countries do that. So France, the UK, and probably some parts of the USA would be very much, you know, your dog is part of your family. In other countries, your dog is still a working animal. And in many, your dog sort of belongs to the whole village rather than to an individual person. So it's been really interesting to look at the culture of of our relationship, you know, the culture of Britain, really, and how much dogs are a part of it. And to be honest, it was Queen Victoria that made having dogs in the house a, a popular thing that made that socially acceptable. She had hundreds of dogs. And after 
um, Prince Albert died, the sort of first photo of her that was released was her with her dog, sort of leaning against her. And she's all in black in mourning, but it's almost like her connection with her dog is the thing that the public felt they understood her. And I yeah. think it's true to say the royal family ever since have been using, and before then actually, many portraits, photos of them with dogs. And you think of all the the corgi connection with the Queen and at her funeral, that shot of the corgis outside Windsor Castle, how much that moved people. Yeah. You know, that this is, you're allowed to show affection and emotion to your dogs in a way. Yeah, just not your children. No. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but tell me this, that, that's incredibly recent. I mean, in the book, you talk about the 1860s kind of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is evidence. I mean, obviously, dogs are a huge part of people's lives. And I went up to Orkney and found a, a Neolithic grave that had chambers for the dogs, you know, and obviously we know that in Egyptian times, dogs and indeed cats, massively part of of that burial ceremony that they would be with them, that belief in the afterlife and the fact that you want to take your your dogs with you. But I think in many ways, the dogs still treated then as, as herding animals or guarding animals. Whereas today, and what I explore in the book is how you know, yes, they're part of our lives. They get us out there. They they make friendship groups for us. And that's certainly been true for me. But also that we use them as assistance dogs, medical detection dogs, you know, obviously detecting explosives and drugs and cash. Um, I think that's our dream, Graham. Let's find a dog that can find <laughs> cash. In, in a cashless society, it won't work so well, but never mind. <laughs> no, it won't really. Uh, uh, even before you get into the book, there's a, a long introduction where you talk about you losing your dog mm. uh, about three years ago now. And I wondered how much of this book was a kind of excuse to travel the country meeting lots of other dogs to kind of fill that dog void. You have seen straight through me. Yes, that is absolutely what it was about. And, and also in the hope that we might find the right next dog. So PND, potential next dog, is a bit of a driving force through it. But yeah, it was difficult. I just recorded the audiobook the, the other week and that was so hard to read. But for a lot of people, and you will have been through this, yep. <laughs> making that decision to have your dog put down, which is what we had to do with Archie, is a really, really hard thing to do. And my mother had given me some very good advice, which was better to go a week too soon than two weeks too late. And I don't think we did go a week too soon. We absolutely didn't. Um, and I know it was the right thing, but oh God, it doesn't help, does it? It really hurt. No, it's it's so horrible. But don't you think it's the last lovely thing you do for your dog? Yes, it is. And and yeah, um, yeah, it just, it, I, I think a lot of people will identify very, very strongly with that. Most of the book, though, I have to say, is very happy. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's very happy. But even, but even in that grief, yeah. don't you think there's a joy? Because yes. you wouldn't have not had him for all those years oh. to avoid the grief. No, absolutely not. When it came to doing the audiobook, because you are so fluent as a speaker and you, you, know, you commentate so well, it seems to me you're one of those people who can just talk as if you are reading uh, what's it like when you are actually reading because it's an awful lot of just you know there's no extemporizing it's it is the text and that's it how disciplined are you well we did it in record time actually I mean they, they thought it was going to take a lot longer I write as I read 
So because obviously I spent so much time in radio and because the television I do tends to be unscripted, you learn to write as you speak. So actually reading it was not difficult. And did you save the very emotional introduction? Did you save that to the end or did you just go, no, I'm Claire Balding, I can do this? I started at the beginning, but actually there was one paragraph about Archie that I had to go back and do later because I just couldn't. I couldn't get through it without without my voice cracking. So I, I went back and I did that a bit later. But no, most I, I did read it in order. And as you know, it's it's your sort of last, you know, check as well that you're happy with everything and that you haven't made any dreadful errors and that you haven't, you know, that there aren't little things that are wrong in it. So I concentrated quite hard. I and mean, it was it was great, but it is exhausting. In your memoir, you talk about how important animals were to you when you were young. Uh, when did books start to play a part in your life? What age were you? What sort of books were important? Not surprisingly, um, I think, books about animals really touched me. So probably the first book that I read that I thought this is magical was Black Beauty by Anna Sewell, which was the only book she ever wrote. And she wrote it to raise money for a relatively new charity at the time called the RSPCA. And the the narrator is is the horse. Yeah. And I loved that idea. And there are sections of Isle of Dogs that I think people will turn to for comfort. They, they will be lovely, to, to you know, the way you write about dogs and the way you write about the loss of dogs. Um, is there a book that you turn to for comfort or when things are difficult? Yeah, I, I, I sort of hesitate to call them self-help books, but I do enjoy a book that makes me think again about the way. So, for example, The Chimp Paradox, which Steve Peters wrote, really helped me at a time when I thought I was overreacting to things. I felt fairly unstable at work. This would have been about 2008. I was very ill. I got thyroid cancer. I think I was feeling just really vulnerable. And that book made me realize that the brain does, lots of brains work in ways in which anger can take over. And and sometimes you can use anger to fuel you. It can be really useful. I write brilliant emails when I'm angry. I've learned not to send them. Um, (laughs) but they're very fluent and very good Uh, so that was helpful Uh, the third question we ask everyone is a book that you give to people that you think everyone should read I'd say Lessons in Chemistry right now I mean that what a great great book I love that because also there's all the stuff from the world of television it'll be interesting to see what television does with the book oh sorry oh hello see perfect yeah, that goes that's Douglas. That. You see, Douglas Douglas is my key target audience, really. That's what I need to get. I need to get someone to say for the front of the book, if dogs could read, they'd read this book. <laughs> Claire Balding and my own darling Douglas uh, grabbing a little cameo role in our conversation about her own Isle of Dogs and other reading delights. It is nearly time for us to cross back into the realm of the On Podcast. But before we hit reality, the spectre of audiobook insider and chart maven Holly Newson has emerged from the crypt. Holly, tell us about the next titles who might be giving Lincoln and George Saunders a run for their money. Hi, Graham. Well, a big success of 2023. Chris Van Tulliken, TV doctor and one half of the Van Tulliken twins, released Ultra Process People in April. This is one of those books that comes around every now and then, which changes the way people think about food. And this time is about why we eat food that shouldn't really be food, but 
why that's not our fault. Um, past books that I'd put into this category include those by Tim Spector and Dr. Rangan Chatterjee and maybe to some extent the Michael Mosley books as well. Um, though Ultra Processed People is maybe a bit more investigative. Uh, it's been on the most sold and most read non-fiction chart since it released and on the Science and Nature chart too. So it's had massive success and it is still doing really well. Wow. I mean, that is a mystery to me. I don't know why <laughs> anyone would want another list of things we shouldn't be consuming. Uh, but people obviously do. Uh, what should we be keeping our eye on? Well, One to Watch is Wildfire by Hannah Grace. It's top of the erotica chart, high in romance, Why, mm-hmm. ooh, ooh, and ooh. on the overall chart. Um, it's also high on the most gifted erotic romance chart, which strikes me as very specific gift. That's a really niche <laughs> gift, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is book uh, two of the Maple Hill series, and it's about a couple who meet at university on a drunken night and don't swap names or numbers, but fate brings them back together. Book one of this series was a phenomenal success helped by TikTok. And the cover of this one is clearly aimed at the BookTok market as well. Uh, Also, it's worth saying that book one, Icebreaker, is still in the erotica chart too. So Hannah Grace is a name that maybe we'll be hearing more of. We should point out that most gifted erotica doesn't mean kind of most talented. It's it's just, it's a, it's a gift. Yeah. It's a gift. It's a present. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, all right, what's our final snippet? Well, having said in our last episode that poetry commercial successes don't come around too often, I'd just like to quickly eat those words and mention Wild Hope by Donna Ashworth. Um, like Lem says, Let the Light Pour In, this is all about the warmth of the world, about uplifting people. And Donna is pretty big on social media and has devoted fans. But what these two books point to for me is that there are a lot of people right now looking for a pick-me-up and wanting more joy and hope in their lives. And short books. <laughs> <laughs> That's happy. We may not live long enough to finish it. So uh, (laughs) let's go short. Uh, Thank you very much, Holly. Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible and all the information you need will be right there. Our clubbers have gone off to see if they can train Bardo, the book club dog, to bark along to our signature tune. So it just remains for me to thank Alex Clark for holding my hand in the dark. Thank you very much, Alex. You're so welcome. I think I might go and play a bit of Bardo. They were once our Eurovision Song Contest entry many years ago. Do you remember? I do, of course. Yes. Bardo in the Euro. Exactly. (laughs) Just bringing it down a notch, as always. Yeah, it's the sequel that George has been looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just to remind you that, like our last series, this run of the Graham Norton Book Club podcast is available on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts. So go on over and have a look and a listen and leave us a rating and a review if you have a moment. Also, don't forget to join us next time when our book is Andrea Lawler's Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl and world-famous horror writer Garth Marenghi in the form of actor Matthew Holness will tell us about bringing to life his book Incarcerate. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.